Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're all happy campers. Our guest is Zoya Stage. Now, in her previous novels, Baby Teeth and Wonderland, Zoya took us to dark houses and interior spaces. In her new novel, Getaway, she does the exact opposite, dragging us off on the adventure of a lifetime. A week hiking in the Grand Canyon, just the thing, you'd think, to blow away the Covid claustrophobia. It's a shame it all goes so horribly wrong. Getaway is a psychological adventure horror thriller, and you can pick your favourite descriptor from that list. The premise seems simple. Some people go hiking and they encounter something or someone they can't handle. But as you'll hear, it's so much more than that. It's actually one of the deepest character studies that I've read recently. Zoya goes way into the minds of these women and into the minds of one very strange man. Consequently, we talk a lot about character, about how to build them and how to create bonds between them, about the importance of complex, compassionate villains and how trauma is a driving force in both plot and character psychology. But it is an adventure and a horror story, after all. So we also talk about the terror of the wild and how easily a knife could cut through tent fabric. (laughs) So, you'll need your boots this week. We're off on a hike to the Great Continental Divide. Pat lightly though, you may need to run. Let's talk scared. Hi Zoya and welcome to Talking Scared. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's great to have you. You've been somebody I've wanted to have on, on the show since the very start. I had your name kind of pigeonholed because I, I loved your first novel so much. And now we're back with the, with the third. So I always start in the same way. Bit of context. Where are you in the world right now? I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is my hometown. Well, I don't know what's going on with Pittsburgh, but there are so many horror writers in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I know. It's true. There are. I I don't. Maybe because of uh, George Romero and Night of the Living Dead. He made that here. He's from here. And yeah, no, I think horror has a bit of a cult following here. That's a great little tee up for me, because in two weeks I'm speaking to Daniel Krauss, who wrote The Living Dead with George Romero. It's all tying together. Um, Whilst we're on Pittsburgh, just going to say Laura Kreml good friend of mine. She is a uh, Pittsburgh native and is an amazing horror academic. So go find Laura Kreml. Uh, but back to you, Zoya. Sorry. Um, how are you, first of all? How's, how's life treating you? Life is good. I can't complain. The world is what it is. So I have to block that part out. But um, but yeah, no, I'm good. Thank you. Good. I keep telling people it's, it's a weird thing because obviously I'm, I'm on Twitter and I speak to lots and lots of American authors by like nine out of 10 people I speak to on this show are American. And I kind of want to reach out to America and give you all a kind of pat on the back and just say, it will be okay. Because like you've got the Delta variant now and I can tell that everyone is scared shitless of the Delta variant. All I can say is we had it first and we're all right. So okay, it, it will be okay. And we've got a complete clattering moron in charge um so you know what it it will be okay well that makes me feel a little bit better because yeah yeah, it is a constant worry now you know just when things were getting normal we saw light at the end of the tunnel and yeah it feels like the final kind of twist before the hero comes in at the end of a movie and say it feels like that final spoke in the wheels we're almost there I hope so. I mean, I got to tell you, the last year, it sort of has, has felt like we've been in this slow apocalypse. And I'm like, do we just keep going down and down and down until mayhem takes over? Or at some point, do things really start to seem like the real world again? And I don't know. I can't tell yet from where I am. So I don't know. Well, I'll hope I, for the best. I was on a stag party in Edinburgh last weekend. Um which if you said that to me even six months ago, I'd be like, that will never happen again. So I think there is light at the end of the tunnel if people would just get vaccinated. But that's a whole different thing. That's a whole, I'm, I'm already furious about that most of my day anyway, so let's not pollute the podcast with it. So pandemic aside, it looks like you're living in some kind of relative urban comfort, but this conversation is going to take us way out into the wilds because 
Your new novel, Getaway, is set almost entirely in, in and around the Grand Canyon. And, and it's not the canyon of sort of picture postcards or expensive rafting trips. It's it's pretty hardcore. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Getaway is about my, my hero's name is Imogen and she's a writer and she's lived quite a reclusive lifestyle for quite a long time. And her, she has two really good friends. One is her sister, uh, her sister Beck, and the other is her friend from high school, Tilda. But unfortunately, in recent years, they've really become kind of estranged from each other. And with her combination of being a hermit and having these kinds of traumas that she's dealing with, her sister Beck decides that the best thing that they could all do is they need to go spend a week in the wilderness and Beck is a very, very experienced um, backpacker in the Grand Canyon. So she organizes this trip for the three of them to go spend a week in wilderness. Well, they'll have a chance to recover from their issues and bond, and it'll just be a great time. And almost immediately, Imogen starts to kind of feel her paranoia sneaking in again because they start to experience some things that she thinks should not be happening in the canyon, like some of their food goes missing and things like that. And that's usually about where I like to end my description. Obviously, there are other things that happen that involves their getaway becoming something they need to get away from because it's a very, very serious situation that puts their lives in peril. And it ends up being an extremely different trip than what they thought it was going to be. Well, it ends up being an extremely different book to what I thought it was going to be. Um, in a good way or a bad way? <laughs> in, in a very good way. So I'll be honest. I've read Baby Teeth. I haven't read Wonderland. Um, but when I when I read the synopsis on this, I, I didn't get how it, how it fit with your style of writing. Because um, I... It, the synopsis, and this is no criticism of your marketing team, but it suggests it's going to be much more. Um, it suggests it's going to be another story in a very particular and, and quite simple vein. The idea of a group of people go off into the wilderness and they meet someone or something awful. Now, we've seen that story play out in film and fiction a thousand times, but your version is quite different. In, in tone and focus. Would you agree? I would agree. And I think that part of why like the jacket copy is what it is. I know my, I know my editor, Helen, kind of like me, like we're really reluctant to give away too much about the story, but now I'm wondering if based on your interpretation, like maybe we should have beefed up the description just a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's definitely more of a psychological story. I know it, it might look like you look at the cover and everything and you think, oh, it's going to be an adventure thriller. And there are aspects of that to it. But really everything that they are dealing with in terms of survival ends up being how does the psychology of the situation works? How does the interplay of the relationships between these three women and then when they encounter the man, how does that affect everything. So it's really a deeply psychological book, in my opinion. That's how I view it. So, um, so yeah, it's it's not like an action-packed adventure thriller in that regard. Well, I, I don't want to downplay that either, because I'm not saying in any way that it doesn't have this. I mean, it's very much a thriller, very much a thriller. It's just it's a very interior thriller. To say it's in such an expansive place, we spend an awful lot of time inside the heads of these characters. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it certainly works, that contrast between expansive horizons and these, the claustrophobia of these people's neuroses. The thing that reminded me of the most, the, the book that I just kept thinking of all the way through, and I, I wonder if this has been said to you before, reminded me of Jaws. Insofar as Jaws is not about a shark. It's about three men and their relationships and their differing and complex relationships. And I'd argue that Getaway is doing something very, very similar with female friendships. It's not a book about a scary hike or a scary hiker. It's about these people and their interconnections. That's a very interesting observation. I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that, because I know one of one of the first people who read it said that that this book is going to be to the, you know, to camping and hiking, what Jaws was to the ocean. 
which was just sort of funny. But um, but no, no, that's very interesting. And it is. I mean, I mean, I guess probably one of the first things that I knew I wanted to do with this book was have this really deep dive into the relationships between these three women and how complex friendships can be and how difficult friendships can be to maintain over decades and when there's a lot of distance between people. So it definitely is at its heart a relationship story in that sense. So, yeah, so you've got Imogen, um, who is our kind of POV character. It's third person. It's a tight third person. And then you've got her sister, Beck, and their friend Tilda, as you said. And they're three very different women. And I, I wonder, did you intentionally sculpt them to represent a different slant on womanhood? One of the origins of this book that actually made it really difficult for me is it has its basis in several things in my real life. One of them was that I backpacked in the Grand Canyon many times and had a an encounter with a frightening person in the Grand Canyon. And another was this relationship that I've had with my sister and our best friend from high school. So we always were a trio of friends. Um, and when I first started writing the novel, I was actually a little bit close to that idea of the three of us. You know, I knew I needed to do different things with the characters. I knew that the characters needed to be flawed. They needed to have their ugly moments. And because sometimes like my sister's face would pop into my head or my friend's face would pop into my head, I didn't want to let them go to the extreme that they needed. And then at some point it was, um, I guess when I was writing the second draft of it, I realized I needed to make each of these three women extremely distinct and really heighten what was unique about each of them. Um, and they really are very different. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of the process of getting to that point. You know, I knew that there needed to be, there needed to be tensions between them like really palpable tensions. But the other thing I, which was hard to find a good balance for, I also always wanted them to be close enough that they had a reason to keep trying to do this. You know, there was a, there was a, a point where, you know, my editor like really wanted them to have so many extreme tensions and problems between them. And finally, like I said to her, you know, if, if these people really didn't get along, to the degree that she was suggesting, Beck would never take them to the Grand Canyon. Like maybe she would take them car camping, but she would never take two warring people to the Grand Canyon. So that also sort of necessitated having things sort of simmering beneath the surface, doing a lot of things that are just more internal. So it is interesting how a story comes about by certain logical and necessity things that need to to come together to form the right kind of story. Completely. And one of the things I love about the book is the way that on the same page, you'll have two people getting on and then someone else will kind of, one, the third person will kind of cause a problem. And then by the end of the page, those two people could then be getting on and the other one is called, it, it's constant flux, constant flux in, in who is friends, who's not friends, you know, who thinks what. And, and I think that really is, you know, a quite realistic depiction of friendship, regardless of gender. Um, because I have that where I've been in, in situations where like I'm with my friends and we're falling out. But if someone else says something, it's like all of a sudden we're a unit again. And, you know, you're. and I think you get that across really well. And you never feel that these people are anything other than characters with a, with a genuine past who you know they always care about each other. Even at one moment, which is a flashpoint, where one of the people seems to suggest that they would potentially sacrifice others to save themselves even then you pull it back and, and that person gets brought back into the fold yeah you know honestly i think that there is a almost inevitable dynamic that happens when three people are very good friends and three people are together because there's something very easy about having your one person that you're tight with in that moment or agreeing with that in that moment. And then the other person always feels left out. But as you said, the dynamics shift um, mm -hmm. and friendships are very kind of fluid that way. You know, if you're going to approach them, honestly, it's like you can love your best friend to death, but that doesn't mean you like them every minute of every time that you're with them. So yeah, I really, you know, with with Baby Teeth is very much a mother-daughter story and Wonderland, again, very much 
a mother, daughter, and family story. And, and with Getaway, I really wanted to explore a different kind of relationship, and that was really friendships. I think friendships, in my life, friendships are the most important relationships I have. Mm-hmm. How have your sister and friend taken to the novel? Have they read it? Are they? Do they yeah. see themselves in it? Are they? Are they all on board? No, they, no, they both really like it. It's interesting. Um, you know, my friend who was sort of, sort of Tilda. I mean, she did not see at this point any of herself in it, <laughs> which I don't either. Like, there's one joke that Tilda cracks at some point in the book, and I could totally see my friend Lisa having said something like that in her 30s. Um, my sister's take on it, which I'll just let her think this. She she looks at Beck as being like a very idealized version of herself. And I'm like, okay, if you want to think that, that's fine. I mean, I don't personally see them as being that similar anymore, but there probably are just little elements that, you know, it's like you can see yourself in a stranger, you know, if you know enough about them or something. So I'm sure my sister does see bits of herself in Beck. It would be okay. a little hard not to, I guess. We can jump deeply into into all the character stuff, and we will. But from what I've said, I don't want to mislead too many people into thinking there's no adventure or no thrills in this. As, as well as being a character study, it's also undeniably about adventure. And because the entirety of it, apart from like the first chapter and the et- epilogue, kind of takes place in the Grand Canyon. And you wrote it during the pandemic. What, was this your window on the world at a time when we were all stuck indoors? Actually, it wasn't because I um, I wrote the first draft, I think, in 2018. So I did do a major rewrite of Getaway while I was in lockdown. Um, but yeah, no, that wasn't that wasn't really like, oh, what am I what am I going to write while I'm in lockdown during the pandemic? I did write something and it's a little bit batshit crazy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't this. <laughs> I imagine you with like a picture of the Grand Canyon on your wall, like a window, just thinking I'd like to be there. The novel, I suppose, is quite acute about this this paradox of safety in the outdoors. I think the idea that we all have is that if we go to dangerous, isolated places like the Grand Canyon, we'll actually be safer from human threat which is something that's confined to the urban. Now, do you do a lot of hiking and kind of outdoorsy things yourself? And do you get creeped easily? Um, I did do a lot of hiking and backpacking when I was younger. It's not something I've done in more recent years. But um, I mean, my, my dad was a backpacker and a hiker. So I started backpacking when I was seven. Um, And initially, it was not something that really freaked me out. I also felt like it's safer to be out there and not around people. Mm -hmm. And then as I hinted at, there was an incident that we had in the Grand Canyon where we did encounter someone who was very odd. And that was probably the first time I really started thinking like, oh, you can still have odd and scary and potentially dangerous people anywhere. They, They don't not go into the wilderness and and that sort of changed my perspective and then in later years um like when my sister and i would just go camping just the two of us i was much more paranoid by that point i was definitely paranoid and we would always just the two of us go camping like somewhere off season where it was really deserted and you know i remember a time where we had encountered this guy who was seemingly living at the campground and there was just something about his presence and i think it's mentioned in the book actually Mm -hmm where it was just a little bit, it just made us a little bit uncomfortable. And there was really no reason. It's like he didn't do anything. He didn't approach us. He didn't say anything. It was just the reality that he had like set up his whole home in this national forest where you're not even allowed to do that. And, you know, my sister and I are both really small people. And, you know, we sleep when we're, you know, not in the canyon in a teeny tiny backpacking tent. And it was just so easy to imagine like a knife plunging through the roof of the tent in the middle of the night. But when I was younger, I had definitely had much more innocent ideas about the wilderness being safe from people. But I think as I grew older and got more paranoid, it definitely affected how I felt out of doors also, which is a shame. It shouldn't be like that. No, it, it, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because we, we spend our lives building these, you know, 
these houses around us that are made of brick and iron and glass, you know, to, and we lock our doors and like, no, no one would dream of not locking their door anymore. And I'm, well, I'm sure the people that would, but I wouldn't. And, and yet we'll happily go off into the middle of nowhere with a piece of fabric between us and the outside world. And just the, the, the two things never seem to sit ill at ease with each other, that we're so paranoid in our urban lives, yet so lax in our kind of outdoorsy lives, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's really true. And I think, you know, even as an extension of that, that when people go on vacation, just the idea that they're going away, and even if it is just to go visit the Grand Canyon or take a day hike in the Grand Canyon, they have this idea that they've, they're taking a vacation and therefore it is all going to be perfectly fine because they're there to have fun. And I know like one of the things we used to encounter in the Grand Canyon all the time would be tourists who were just like taking a day hike. And they would not understand like how serious even just Bright Angel Trail was. And they wouldn't have water with them or snacks or proper shoes. And, you know, there is a rescue place like halfway between um, the floor of the Grand Canyon and the rim, specifically for all of the tourists who get into trouble because they don't realize that just because it's a place where a lot of tourists go, that doesn't mean it's easy and it doesn't mean it's safe. But yeah, everybody has this idea. You're going on vacation to have fun and therefore it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be good and fine and you're going to have fun. Every uh, winter in the UK, there's always news stories about um, mountain rescue having to go to the top of like Ben Nevis in Scotland to rescue a load of guys who've gone walked up in shorts because it was sunny at sea level. Um, you've alluded twice now to something that happened when you were younger in the, when you were outdoors. Are you happy to talk about it or is it, is it something you yeah. don't speak about? What, what no, happened? No, I can tell you about it. Yeah. So, you know, it was something I didn't have very clear memories of. And when I was starting to think about this story and, and it sort of came back to me in this very weird way. So my memory of it was that my family and I were backpacking in a very remote place in the Grand Canyon. I was 18 and we were staying in a very remote inner canyon called Salt. And it was a place where only one um, group of people can be at a time. And we were those people. We knew we were those people. And this guy came by. In my memory, this guy seriously was like carrying a hip holster, like he had a gun. And like in my memory of it, he looked like the gunslinger. Hmm. And so I knew my memory was wrong and I knew my memory was just being creative and emotional. So I asked my sister, I'm like, you know, do you remember that time we went to Salt and that weird guy came by? And she said, oh, yeah, he said he had just gotten out of prison and that he was, you know, like just walking around. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I asked my dad if he remembered. And my dad has, like, the best memory. And especially for anything that ever happened in the Grand Canyon, he remembers everything. And he said, yeah, that guy had said he had just gotten out of prison. And he was walking around the canyon by himself. And at some point, he had crossed paths with a lone female ranger. And this guy just reported very conversationally that he had realized he could have picked up a rock and bashed her in the head and no one would ever have known. And like, we're just a family, you know, backpacking and he's telling us this story. And my dad at that point said he started looking around to see if there were any rocks or anything he could grab, you know, in case this guy, we just didn't know what he was going to do. And in real life for us, fortunately, the guy walked on. But, you know, this is getaway is about, you know, what if you encountered a guy like that and he did not walk on? Yeah. So did you just, did, did you stay there like one eye open all night? We did stay there. Um, you know, I guess we felt really confident that he really had walked on, you know, the Canyon is the kind of place there's, there aren't a lot of places to just bivouac, you know, so mm -hmm. he probably did not just go a hundred yards or whatever and stop for the night. He probably really did walk on quite a ways. Um, and where, where we were, Salt is a very exposed place in the canyon, so you can see in a lot of directions. So we felt okay. I mean, I we may have talked about it then over the course of the days, but I don't think it further affected like that particular trip. But it definitely it planted itself in my head in its own small way in my subconscious for decades. And then I started thinking about it again. Well, clearly, yes, because thus 
this brings us to Gale, the fourth ingredient in this in this novel. I was going to call him the villain, but villain seems a very reductive term for such a complex man. Talk to me about the creation of Gale in all his oddness and unpredictability, because he's not like any villain I can really think of. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously he had his most basic inspiration in the story of the, the guy who stopped at Salt and had said that he had just gotten out of prison. Um, but it was very important to me when I was creating this character because it really became almost the theme of the entire book of not having something that was clearly good or evil. And I didn't want him to be clearly good or evil. There are things that he does that are terrible, but his way of being and when he starts talking about his life is he seems very much like a person, a real person. It might not be somebody you would meet in your ordinary life, but it doesn't mean that he's not sympathetic in terms of what his situation is. And especially with Imogen and the way that she thinks, because she is a writer and she does very much live in her head and think about characters and think about people. Um, You know, maybe initially when she met him, you know, she was thinking of him more in terms of like, if he were a character in one of her books, what would, how would he be? What would his backstory be? Because, you know, that is something that's familiar to her and she tried to sort of process him that way. And then as she got to know him a little bit better, she still was leaning very much towards having empathy for him and really seeing the human part of him where Tilda and Beck had a very, very different perspective of him. And it's like, we're not in their heads in the book, but I think it's pretty obvious that they very much viewed him, that he was just a threat, that he was just a bad guy. You know, and Imogen really developed this idea that what she could contribute to helping them to survive would be to really figure him out, to, to bond with him on some real human level so that he would really see them also as being human beings and that that would be what she could contribute to their survival strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, her her being a writer is really important. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a certain moment of violence in this novel that kind of comes out of nowhere. I had a wry smile because your writing style changed and I could tell that what's actually happening here is that this is Imogen seeing this act as if she was writing it in her novel. And, and that happens right the kind of like the narrativization and she kind of sentimentalizes and mythologizes things as if she's as if she's writing the events in front of her. But obviously we're aware that what's going on is not romantic and it, it, there is no sentiment to this. It, it, it's quite a scary situation. Do you think Imogen, does she get something from Gale? Or does she see something of herself in him? Something that perhaps she lacks or that she, I don't know. It feels like they've got a, a relationship which isn't purely hero, villain or antagonist, protagonist. It feels in some way a bit symbiotic. Yes, that actually that's the exact word that I would use for it. Um, Imogen definitely sees something in him. And at some point, she really starts to understand that what he does so well that she doesn't do in her own life is to really declare that his life is worth living and his life is worth everything. And, you know, with Imogen and some of the difficulties that she has, she always, she doubts herself and she doubts her worth and she doubts what she can contribute. And watching him and the way he wants to survive, I mean, he wants to survive at all costs. And she realizes at some point she hasn't done that. She has not lived like her life was worth fighting for. So, you know, it's a story where obviously they they go there to have this bonding experience and to, you know, start on a different path in life, but she would really never have become maybe the ultimate person that she could be without having had this encounter with Gail. Yeah, he definitely, he gets into her psyche in a really big way. I think their relationship is very interesting. Yeah, it's quite unlike anything I've read before. Because at first I thought it was like an exercise in Stockholm syndrome. I mean, that's even referenced, but it, it it's not, is it? It's not that at all. No. It's it's more okay. of a lack in her that he is filling in some weird way rather than an actual yeah. bond. 
because she sees bits of herself in him, like that's how she tries to relate to him. And then she starts to see the parts of him that she doesn't have. And she starts to consider, oh, would those, should I be a bit more like that? I love to explore that, you know, what is good and what is evil and and are good and evil even applicable words? Because obviously some of the things that she maybe wants to take from him aren't necessarily what we would call good things, if you know what I mean. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, does he? It doesn't necessarily make her a better person, but it it makes her definitely a stronger person. For yeah, that. yeah, maybe at the at the, the the loss of something else, I suppose. But you, I mean, you mentioned you're interested in that, you know, good and evil. This isn't your first time crafting a character like this because there's also Hannah, the the kind of, for want of a better word, evil child in your first novel, Baby Teeth. And I guess I haven't read Wonderland yet, so I don't know whether we've got that same ambiguity there. But what is it that draws you to these compassionate villains? Is it a challenge? Do you sit down thinking, okay, I'm going to write a villain and I'm going to make my readers kind of like him? I honestly don't know if I could write a straight up villain that was just pure evil. Um, And part of it, part of it also, I, I gave Imogen quite a few of my own thoughts and experiences. But one of the things that she talks about is taking an acting class. And this was something that had happened to me many years ago. And this teacher said something that just struck me so much, which was that even the worst villain in the world, the most horrible person who's ever lived, they don't think of themselves as evil. Mm-hmm. That their perspective of their self is, is that they're doing the things in their life that they need to do, you know, from the perspective of what they've experienced and what they understand about the world. And they would they would never think of themselves as evil. And And after that, you know, I actually got to play some characters that were evil. And like, that was exactly how I approached it is, you know, what is this character's backstory that made them so needy in this particular way? But I really feel like it has such relevance to every human being and almost every situation that happens in the world, because people are not just one thing. Even the best, kindest, most generous human being in the world could probably have a moment where they snap and potentially, you know, do something violent or do something terrible. And I personally think it's helpful, at least for myself. I mean, I would kind of like other people to think this way, but to think of or to be aware of your own potential to not be a good person so that you can be on the lookout for when have you become part of the problem? You know, part of a like what we're experiencing in the world right now with, you know, people who don't want to be vaccinated and don't want to wear a mask and just the underlying selfishness of not wanting to wear a mask is just so incredible. I mean, it's just mind boggling to me how somebody could not see that the purpose of wearing a mask is to help your fellow human beings. That person would never view themselves as being evil, but they also don't see that they have crossed a point where what they're doing is like not to the benefit of of society. So like maybe they are evil right now. My my thing with that is that it's kind of the flip side of what you're saying. And I think everyone. So. So. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm waffling here. Right. Get with the program, Neil. Everyone thinks that deep down they are do, that they're kind of doing things for the right reasons. Everyone's got a reason. Everyone's got a story. No one is just evil without context. But I think the flip side of that is everyone thinks they are the hero of the story or at least of their own story. So when you get something like the mask, um, like wearing a mask or like a vaccine, the amount of times I've heard people say, I'm going to wait to get the vaccine to see what happens. And all you're doing there is making other human beings bit characters, extras in this story of your life where you are all that matters. Because what you're basically saying is, you know, let's see if other people die before I yes. take it, you know? Right. And, and that is just, it's narrative. That is create, that is putting yourself as the protagonist in a story and saying everyone else is playing a part here to support my journey. Absolutely. So I actually completely agree with what you're saying is that we all need to consider that maybe we're not the hero, you know, maybe, maybe we're the, the, the funny best friend, or maybe we're like, you know, I don't know, maybe we're the villain, I don't know, but we're not necessarily the hero. And, and what I love about compassionate villains, or at least 
empathetic villains is that they make sense. So I'm, I'm talking a lot now, but I think the, the greatest villain in storytelling in recent years, this is going to sound really out of left field, is Thanos from the Avengers stuff, from all the Marvel stuff. He has a completely valid reason for doing what he's doing, right? And the flip side, the worst villain is, um, do you watch The Walking Dead? I did watch that, yeah. Negan. Oh, God, I hate it. Negan was the reason I stopped watching the show. Yeah, I powered through because it gets good again. But anyway, Negan is a terrible villain, not because the actor's bad or anything like that, but because one minute we have to loathe him with every fibre of our being. And then like three series later, they've done that thing that I hate in storytelling, which is where they give you a loathsome villain and then slowly chip away his loathsomeness and make him kind of like the lovable rogue. That's not how life works. Not Trump is not going to turn around and be likable one day. You know what I mean? Whereas no, it's not. villains that have that that germ of likability from the outset, they at least make sense. You get why they may get in under your radar or under your skin. And that's very much for me what Gale is. Yes, that makes complete sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, somebody like Trump, he doesn't have the capacity to change. I mean, someone who's a complete narcissist or a complete megalomaniac, there's mm-hmm. there's no room for self-reflection in that kind of person. And that you're exactly right. That's how Negan was absolutely that kind of character. Why would he ever stop to become self-reflective? It doesn't make any sense. So. No. So yes, obviously in that sense, you know, Gale starts out having moments that aren't horrible, that you know he's not horrible. He talks about people that he cares about, his family and moments in his life that are important to him. And they're very sympathetic. Everybody understands what it's like to have a family that you care about. So I always find people who are shades of gray, situations that are shades of gray, books that are shades of great to me that's how my brain functions and so it's much more interesting to me um i could see how for some people it might drive my books you know they might be driven crazy by my books because if they want just the clear-cut villain whether that's in baby teeth or in getaway you know it's like i don't like to do clear-cut i like it to meander a bit and for people to bring some of their own understanding because it has become quite apparent to me that readers bring a lot of their own experience and their own understanding to the characters and and they couldn't do that if those characters were just strictly black and white no not at all i think there's a place for you know ridiculous villainy but i think if you're going to devote pages to building these layered characters with these inner lives it would then be like a hand grenade to just go Oh, and there's also this guy who's like a mad axe man with no context. You know, you've got to give your villains as much respect as your heroes, right? They've 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 both got to be given the same amount of work and the same amount of depth and and, and almost the same amount, the same chance for us as readers to see things that we recognise in the villain as well as our hero. And that can be an uncomfortable thing, but it, it's a it's a necessary thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it. I think every villain that I've been at all interested in, it's because you saw something redeeming about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because then it does make you wonder if somebody did have, you know, empathetic qualities, how did they become somebody who was doing something truly terrible? What was the path that took them that way? And then the next question is, is there something that could happen that I would go on a path like that? You know, if I'm more or less a good person, but I'm not 100% good. I mean, I don't know if anybody really is. What would be the situations that could happen in my life that I could become somebody I can't imagine right now, but end up in prison for some horrible crime or something? Advertisement time. Bear with me. It will be over soon and it's worth it. This episode is supported by Novelik, the brand new book app. It's designed to help you find books you love, pad out your TBR pile with recommendations based on your own reading tastes, and alert you to new titles you may not have heard of. It's especially good for genre fans with curated lists, including one dedicated to talking scared, and they're based on human rather than computer algorithms. That all sounds like marketing spiel, I know, but I wrote it and it's all true. I use Novelit because it has none of the nastiness that can plague book networks. There are no reviews and no star ratings, which means you won't see a book 
getting negged just because some group of morons disagrees with the author's politics. It's pure recommendations from people like us who love stories. And you can find those people because it has a digital book club feature. Join a group of like-minded readers or start your own club. I have. The Talking Scared Book Club is live now for Patreon listeners, but there really is something for everyone. Novelic. Another way for us to talk about horror. I, I mentioned at the start of this conversation that, that Getaway is, is distinct from your typical adventure gone wrong story. Um, but it's not the only one that is different in that same way. So it does have some sort of siblings, I suppose. Uh, and the two that spring to mind, which in being character studies in this same kind of, of adventure mold, the two that jump into mind immediately are James Dickey's Deliverance, which treads similar ground, but from a much more alpha male kind of point of view. Um, and the other one, and I wonder if you've read it, is Adam Neville's The Ritual. I have not. I have not read that. Well, I'd, I'd recommend it for a start. I mean, I everyone loves it. It's my, weirdly my least favourite of Adam's novels, even though it's by far his, his most famous. But it's basically similar to your novel in some ways. It's about a group of friends who go in, into the wilderness, this time the Scandinavian kind of forests, and they they encounter terrible things. And they're all men, which is the difference. It's a nice counterpoint to your novel. But when I was thinking about the two, what really interested me is that they both hinge on a similar kind of narrative propulsion insofar as the POV character within the group that we're following have trauma in their recent past. So in the ritual, it's the violent murder of one of their friends back at home. And in Getaway, it's this mass shooting that Imogen narrowly avoids in like the very opening of the novel. Why do you think that these stories benefit from having this propulsive trauma at the start? A couple reasons. One, I think it makes the character vulnerable to certain things. And the other, it might actually make readers feel a little bit more uncomfortable too, because... Knowing that something terrible has happened to someone, there's something a little bit uncomfortable about that. Like if you met someone and you knew like that their husband or their wife or had been murdered, like there's something immediately like, oh, that's not only is that odd, but you immediately would start to think, oh, how has that affected this person? What has their life and their situation been like? So I think to have a setup like that, there's something that readers automatically are a little bit on edge about and are interested in. Um, so I think that helps. And, you know, and obviously for the sake of like with Imogen, is it, it creates a, a place where she's starting in a very, a very vulnerable, almost weakened state. I hate to say that, but she's kind of in a weakened state and it allows for her character arc to be that much bigger, which mm -hmm. I think can be very satisfying if done well to read a character who goes through a really big experience. Well, well, it's interesting that actually in the ritual and getaway, in both cases, the character in question is actually kind of reeling from their inaction in the tragedy. So in, in the ritual, it's Luke is the main character. He doesn't intervene in his friend's murder. He kind of holds back and that causes all kinds of yeah, issues between the group. Um, and in, in your book, Imogen, kind of hears the gunshots and stays outside. And, and then we find out later there is another thing that has happened where she's remained passive and inactive as well. Um, and I, I wonder, like, is the challenge, is it all about redemption? Is it all about these people redeeming themselves in their own eyes? Quite possibly. I think redemption is a very strong theme. Um, I think in small ways, probably all of us carry little things with us that we wished we could have done differently or or have an idea of like, oh, well, you know, maybe I can be a better person and I won't act like this next time. Well, imagine if you have some huge thing. I mean, something that was truly life-altering, life-threatening, and you were just inactive in that moment. I mean, I can see how, it's like, how do you forgive yourself? You know, you would just think about it. It would 
just play on you all the time. Well, very close to the end of this book, Imogen has this realization, right? And to keep it vague, it's to do with selfishness and survival and the reality of her own peril, um, both in the present moment and actually throughout her own life. And and I get the sense that that moment is the kind of reason you wrote this book. Tell me if I'm wrong, but it felt like I could almost feel you pick up the pace and sprint towards that moment. Did it feel like all that plot and all that development was designed to get us to that single moment of becoming? Because it certainly came across like that. Yeah, you're very good at this. You're very good at analyzing books. You know, one of the weird things about being a writer, like I don't think about my books the same way that a reader does. Like I, I write it and then after the fact, people ask me about it. I'm like, huh, why did I do that? But the reality of the situation is like I have a very specific process for how I write where I know I have, I have my character. I know something that happens at the beginning of the story. I know something, have some general idea of some vague thing that happens in the middle of the story, and I know something that happens at the end of the story. So in that sense, you are correct that I was always writing her toward that place. And it is not easy to get a character who is as vulnerable as Imogen is in the beginning to get her to the place where she is at the end. From a writing perspective, it's very much like working out a complex puzzle. But yes, you may be right that 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 I was writing the whole book to get to that. <laughs> well, it's quite the end. I mean, we won't we won't strain to that because I don't want to give it away. But it is quite the primal scream of an ending. It was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, I know I you said you think it's in, in Imogen's voice, but I think it's more that she's outside of herself in that moment. And so I had to write it differently because it's it's just a different kind of narrative need in that moment mm. let's move on because i don't want to give anything away because as i said in in my tweet today i was 30 pages in the end and this is rare because i've read a lot of books i've read a lot of horror books you know what i mean i've read i've read what i thought this story was a lot of times and i was 30 pages from the end and i put my book down last night and i had no idea where it was going and i thought there's not enough time left to kind of resolve this i had no idea where it was going and where it did go i would never have guessed um so yeah let's let's leave that for the reader to discover on their own terms but while you're talking about process of writing you did mention before and i've got to ask you've written something batshit crazy during the pandemic yes i did um is this your next novel it is my next novel um and i just delivered it to my agents a couple weeks ago, and I was going to wait to show it to them. I wanted to get some feedback from beta readers first. And I reached this point, I was so insecure about this book because it is a little bit batshit crazy. But then I showed it to my agents and I'm like, okay, I just need an honest opinion. They loved it. They loved my batshit crazy book. So I can't say too much about it yet because it's still very early. I had not set out to write a pandemic story. But because I was writing it during the pandemic, there are a lot of pandemic lifestyle things that worked themselves into the book and and worked really well to explain why these two characters who are kind of hating each other are stuck in the same house together. So someday soon, hopefully, I'll have more to say. Do you have a working title? Yes, the working title is Caretaker. That's creepy. It's a, it's a mother-daughter story. It's an adult mother-daughter story. Well, you've given us some really nice titillating kind of tidbits there without saying anything at all. So, um, That's good. yeah, I look forward to that. All left to do now, Zoya, is to finish off with my standard two closing questions. Um, the first one's easy. The second one's hard. First of all, can you recommend one book for my listeners and, and tell us why? And that's the easy question? That's the easy question. I think that's the hard question. It's so hard to pick one book, but I think if, if I'm going to pick one book that I think is spectacular, that blew my mind in every way, I would pick The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Have you read The Road? I, I have read The Road, yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to read The Road anytime soon. Huh? Yes, no, I know. 
I'm slightly um, hes. I know I was a little hesitant about. Yeah, do I recommend the road? I've got I've got much tougher listeners than I am, though, so that's fine. What do you love about the road? I love the way it's written. It's almost written in poetry, and the way the sentences and the descriptions are. I was just in awe of how that was written and the economy of words, the imagery and the emotions that were created with an economy of words. So that might be, honestly, it might be me as a writer, just like really admiring how the book was written. So I don't know if that's what readers really want to read, but I'm just kind of in awe of that. I mean, he won the Pulitzer. I think you're in safe hands recommending that one. It's a weird one, the role, because, um, my wife, who gets name-checked in this show all the time, despite the fact that she hates horror and can't handle it, um, we had a bit of a we had a disagreement about the road because I asked her to watch it, and she watched it, and she was very angry at me for making her watch it because she hates things that are, in her words, pointlessly awful. And my argument is about the the film and the book is that, that it has a happy ending. It, it does, it, you know. It's a story that that the father has has done his job. You know, he's he's done what he had to do, and there is a resolution. And I think it's a hopeful novel. It's probably the world's most grim hopeful novel. Yes, but I believe there true. is hope in it nonetheless. I mean, he is a father on a mission. That's he yeah. has one mission for the entire book. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's a great film actually on um, on Netflix called Cargo, and it stars. Martin Freeman from the British office. Oh, I think I saw that. I think I saw the, that. The, the zombie movie. He has, the, he has the little baby. Yeah. So it's about the zombie outbreak. He's got a baby and he gets bitten and he's got like something like 36 hours before he turns. But he's in the middle yeah. of the Australian outback and he has to get this baby somewhere, hence the cargo. And it's a, it's a zombie novel which reduced me to tears. And again, it's about that thing in the road, the, the, the dad. Yeah. At the end, in the most beautiful, heartbreaking, brutal way, you know, he does his job. So, yeah, read The Road and and, and watch Cargo on Netflix. Yeah, they, they, they'd make that's a great a double bill for a very yeah. dark weekend. <laughs> the last question then, you may find this easier, but what truly scares you? Yeah, see, to me, that's an effortless question after the okay. last year and a half. To me... The most terrifying thing in the world is that a large portion of our population is living in an alternate reality. And obviously, from their perspective, the other half is living in an alternate reality, but that we're actually living in a completely divided consciousness now. I don't know how we ever how we ever live in the same world again. So mm. I find it that that division is um, it's truly mind boggling. I think about it a bit too much, but it, it's very frightening because you can't talk someone back into understanding the world that you know. So I don't know where that leaves us in this country, honestly. Yeah, I I can't work out if it's worse in the US than the UK or if it's just louder in the US than the UK. You know what I mean? Like it's... yeah. I feel like the divisions already in place in the US were so much more transparent and obvious that it's easier to point to them and go, oh, my God, people have got seriously like, you know, there's there are schisms here. Whereas in the UK, we all kind of mosey along, pretend everything's OK, but those fault lines run deep. So I don't know. But it does feel like the whole post-truth thing and it kind of melds into the anti-vax thing. I don't know what you do with it. I don't know what you do with somebody who will deny what they see in front of them because it's not what they want to believe. I don't right. I don't know what you do with right. that. I mean, half of our government is doing that, you know, with our whole, with the insurrection on January 6th, all of that video exists and they're, you know, those, oh, well, those were tourists. Those were just mm. tourists. It's like they truly yeah. have. Or the, or the FBI. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, I know some of the people, they just talk themselves into thinking of it differently, but for some number of people, they truly live in an alternate reality. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, I think everyone who listens to this show by now is on kind of my side of the fence because I've called Trump like the furious orange or the, the great skid mark enough times that by now they will have fucked off and left us all in peace, you know, to, to be painfully liberal. But um, yeah. Basically, if you listen to this and if for any reason 
you take my word for anything. I, I had the vaccine. I, I napped for like four hours. I've had worse hangovers of, of half a bottle of wine. And, and I've not died. So yeah, please, please get the vaccine. Yes, I doubled up. I had the vaccine. I had a sore arm for a day. And that was it. I was fine. Well, that is truly terrifying. I think more than any kind of spectre or spider or, or homicidal clown. Yeah, that is truly terrifying. Yeah. We just need to shut down Twitter. But on a, on a brighter note, I hope everyone has a chance to read Get Away. Um, don't go into it expecting it to be some, some silly, fluffy thriller. It's certainly not. And it's got a villain that will challenge you in ways you may not have been challenged by, by villains before. Um, yeah, all the best with it. But Zoya Stage, thank you for talking scared. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Getaway has got me yearning for the great outdoors and also considering giving away all my camping gear. I'm not some Bear Grylls type. I mean, my idea of adventure is a day hike or a long run with my mates, but I do love to camp. Trouble is, my imagination runs wild at the best of times and lying in a sleeping bag protected only by a thin shield of a polyester tent, every sound becomes a monster or a bloke in a mask with an axe. And that's on a family camping trip in Wales, let alone the Grand Canyon or Yosemite or Dartmoor or somewhere else with bears and wolves and, let's face it, Bigfoot. I do do a lot of running in the dark, through the woods or over the moors near my house, and my wife always asks me if I get frightened. My stock answer is no. I'm faster than most murderers. I mean, that's why I've been training all this time. <laughs> and anyway, why would there be someone in the middle of nowhere just waiting around for a random victim to come passing by? You're more likely to get murdered nip into the shops. That's the reasoning anyway. But, but what if? What if you did meet a bad person in a place where the rules don't apply? It's a terrifying thought that Getaway explores really well. There is a lot of psychological work and character building in this book, and, and that may disappoint those looking for a high-octane adventure. And I think the marketing has perhaps misled people a little bit in that regard. But Zoya has done a great job of turning the great outdoors into a canvas for human drama and horror. The more I think about it, the more this book really does remind me of Jaws and, and James Dickey's Deliverance. That book, and even the film, is a much more sophisticated piece of work than we all remember. It's a lot more than bows and arrows and squeal like a pig and Burt Reynolds' moustache. It's a whole human thesis. Zoya is aiming for something similar with Getaway, and, and she hits a lot more than she misses. Plus, the book goes to some really complex and dark places in those final, unexpected 30 pages. I'd love to know what you think about it particularly my female listeners, because, yeah, this book goes murky and ambiguous and, and, and quite, you know, off-kilter in its final moments. I'm, I'm intrigued to think what you guys think about the characterisation and, and the climax. While we're on the subject of recommendations, do read The Ritual by Adam Neville. I've mentioned Adam a good few times on this show, and I want to get him on. I know at least a few of you have bought and enjoyed some of his books. The Ritual is most people's favourite, though again, not mine. But I do recommend that you all read it and then move on through Adam's oeuvre. He's one of the very best horror writers we've got here in the UK. If you're after more recommendations, then do download Novelic. Um, it's free, none of that nasty stuff that plagues other book sites, and it gives good recommendations. The book club stuff is cool, if you're a patron, I've already set up the exclusive Talking Scared book club where we can talk to our dark hearts content about what we're reading and what we love. Basically, come and say hi. You can get access by signing up to Patreon. You also get loads of extra content on Patreon, including this week's extras from Grady Hendrix, Chuck Wendig and Ronald Malfi. That'll land very soon. The link is in my show notes or go straight to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. You can also find the show, or, well, me, on Twitter at TalkScaredPod and on Instagram at TalkingScaredPod or, as ever, you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I love your emails. 
you know, write to me. Tell me what you think, what you love. Tell me about the thing that lived in your closet when you were a kid or that time you helped bury a body in the woods. Actually, don't tell me that one because plausible deniability is key. In short, though, I love hearing from you. And as next week is the one-year anniversary of the show, which I can't believe, I want to reiterate what I've said many times already. I value each and every listener, every one of you, and I'm so grateful that you listen, that you share, that you engage, and that you join in this mad adventure I'm on. I'll no doubt talk a lot longer and more effusively and perhaps shed a tear (laughs) next week, but for now, just know that there is an unkent man in an attic room in the north of England who can't believe his luck. Nothing else to announce just now, except to say that we are marking that anniversary with a big name. Next week, the man on the rise himself, Stephen Graham Jones, is helping blow out the candles on the Talking Scared birthday cake. It's a conversation you don't want to miss. But until then, hoist your pack, leave no trace, watch your step, and learn to navigate by the stars. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.